back from Shinnecock Hills, safely back at home, and uh, and and you know you've got uh, you've gotten in and out of Long Island without uh, any extra penalties from the USGA. You have gotten uh, you know in and out of Manhattan, and I did not hear Kyle Porter, whose name is on this podcast. I did not hear him uh, complain too many times about the traffic because. Complaining about the traffic is the lamest thing that a capital J journalist could do at the U.S. Open. <laughs> Kyle, how are you doing, my man? Well, I, yeah, I'm good. I, I've slept. I actually got in uh, at 3 a.m. on Thursday morning, and I didn't tweet about it one time. I know that's just uh, – it might be the greatest journalistic thing I've ever done is not tweeting about – uh, multiple flights being delayed uh, into the U.S. Open. I got a, I got a, I actually got a, t- I didn't tell you this. I got a ticket in Manhattan uh, because I was, I wasn't, I wasn't even texting and driving. I was GPSing and driving and on my way to this video shoot thing. And uh, yeah, got a, got a big fat ticket and uh, not, it, it wasn't the greatest thing, but I managed to not tweet about that as well. So it was a it was a big win for me last week. Oh, I did not. Yeah, all right, so this is, and I hope I'm not spoiling. Let's just say it. Like you were you were about to go uh, do a video with Justin Thomas, right? Right. Yeah. So we were we were sitting down uh, for I don't know thirty or forty minutes. Him, me, him, and and Jimmy Johnson as caddy. And I think the video is going to come out PGA Championship time. And uh, yeah, I was already late. Uh, I had been driving for almost three hours, 40 miles took three hours was just, I was just, you know how it is when you're just frenetic, just pissed off. And I get pulled over for, uh, for having my, like just holding my phone. Apparently you're not allowed to do that in New York. So not, uh, not the best Monday of all time. Driving in Manhattan is uh, a challenge unto itself. The fact that you're also, so this is just NYPD pulling over Kyle Porter on your way. And well, you're they had, saying, yeah, they had like you turn this corner down to, to get to these the CBS studios, which is I think it's where like Good Morning America is and and different shows like that. And uh, there's just cops like lining the street, just pulling people over. Like there was there was like five cops out here just grabbing cars and pulling them over. They weren't even in their cars; they were just walking the streets. It was. I've never seen anything like it. You just get hit with a little knock on the window. A little yeah. Fat, they, oh they man, just, brutal. They whistled. They whistled at me like I was Dwight Howard and just just threw me over to the side. And you know, I kept I kept the number two golfer in the world waiting uh, for another ten minutes because I had to get a ticket for having my phone out. All right. <laughs> All right. Let's get in. On that note, I do. You believe that Brooks Kepka deserves a spot in the conversation as one of the five best golfers in the world? Oh, that's such a good question to start. I, I, I think that's where you got, I think that's where you got to unpack this because this is the second major in a row where I yeah. have come in and out of the major, like, you know, going in, not considering Patrick Reed, not considering Brooks Kepka as sort of this upper, upper tier a very good talent, a very promising talent, a golfer who I think can and will be in the mix for a long time. But I, I for the second major in a row here in this 2018 season, I found myself uh, having to reckon with uh, a status for a new a young American golfer. And as we are sitting here in a Ryder Cup year, that's not a bad thing. But I, I am, I'm having some cognitive dissonance right now with what I think Brooks Kepka, winner of two U.S. Opens but three PGA Tour events, where he stands, uh, sort of in this pantheon of the loaded top tier of golf. Yeah, I, I, I think you have to, and and here's why. It yes, he only has three PGA Tour wins, which is fewer than uh, I don't know. Jonathan Bird is the guy that I like to go to. Uh, for stats like that, but uh, his his finishes at majors. Pe- people were talking about this going in, and it, and it was it's only been heightened now. He's gone. If you're going in reverse order, starting at this year's U.S. Open, he didn't play the Masters, so he went first, and then back to the PGA last year. He was thirteenth, sixth, first, eleventh, fourth, thirteenth, twenty-first, fifth, tenth, 
and then uh, he kind of gets beyond the top 20 after that. But that's essentially, uh, what is that, 10 majors in a row in which he's been inside the top 21. So, yeah, I think he's, I think he's, a, I think he's in the conversation as, a, as one of the five best golfers in the world right now. Where do you think his uh, career, do you think that that becomes just his, his thing uh, you know, the, I'm, I'm going to show up when the lights are on, you know, the, the regular season doesn't count almost is, is the kind of approach here. Or do you think that, uh, in, in what we've seen from Brooks Kepka, particularly coming back from the injury, that there's a, a suggestion or a notion that this is a, a launch pad to, uh, anything more or different from that? Yeah, I, I think his career is going to be fascinating for a number of different reasons and, you know, he's not a guy who like he's he's not a Patrick Reed type where he's going to grind out like 28 events a year and just right. play all the time. And, you know, I, I think that it's been pretty well documented that he doesn't even really like golf that much, which is kind of weird. Uh, or he says he doesn't. So I, I don't think he's going to like end his career having won 20 or 25 PGA Tour events. Um, he, he could end his career having won like eight, but like three or four of them are majors, uh, which would be, it, it's, it, I don't even really know what to make of that. Andy Johnson, fried egg had a, had a really interesting take about how it's less of an indictment of Kepka and more of an indictment on the PJ tour for how they set up their courses to where it doesn't sort of reward these elite ball strikers. Kepka is one of the, I mean, I think he is certainly in the conversation is one of the five best ball strikers in the world. Mm -hmm. And so, and to win two different U S opens as, as uh, kind of <laughs> just the way they were set up was, or, or the way they played out was wildly different. I mean, it, it, it's, it's crazy how different they were and he won both of them. It's it. I, I mean, it's, you would think that those are kind of the extremes. Yes. I and agree. if he, if, if he can win on both of those, it's like, why can't he win all these, like a bunch of PGA tour events. And I think it's just cause he's like, like you said, like just shows up for the big ones. And clearly he does that top, top 21 in his last 10 majors. Um, uh, but I, I, I have no idea how his career is going to play out. I, I, I don't even know where to really begin with that. I'm, uh, I'm excited, you know, count, count me as being really excited. There was uh, a couple of comments from players, uh, you know, the Butch Harmon was, you know, Butch Harmon would talk to anybody. Who would who wanted to talk to Butch Harmon uh, over the last week? Uh, did you, I, did you get to see much of the broadcast? Ah, uh, no, not really. Oh, we went to Butch Harmon for his take on anybody and anything. Him and Curtis Strange just sitting <laughs> on the steps of the clubhouse, just takes, 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 takes. Um, <laughs> but uh, the the idea that during his injury, um, and the scene that was painted uh, that I saw was sitting at home on the couch watching the masters that it might've reinvigorated something. And there was a, an anecdote yeah. about at, at F the Fort Worth invitational, he was grooving. Like I forgot which player played with him, but somebody who was paired with him on Thursday or Friday said that, you know, there was almost like a chesty swagger uh, to the way he was playing. And that's why I'm, I'm not all in on this, but I would not be surprised if this does turn into a little bit of a launching point where we see Brooks Kepka over the next, I don't know, year and a half, two years, three years, but uh, be able to hit a gear where being an elite ball striker, being someone who can, who can overpower a course off the tee, uh, all of a sudden finds himself in a position. And I think it's interesting too that you got to think uh, that he has learned or at least has been able to soak up some game and, and take some notes from the playbook on how to put all these different things together from Dustin Johnson. Yeah, I, I think that it is so weird because it just it, it's I, I don't I like you said I don't know how to reconcile having three PGA Tour wins and two of and them, two of them US are U.S. Opens. It's not like they're it's not like it's two PGAs. No offense to the PGA. Though you could it's argue Aaron Hills as a PGA dressed up as a U.S. Open. <laughs> it's two U.S. Open. Right. He right, won right. the freaking U.S. Open twice. He finished fourth back in 2014. And, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't, I think that you look at a guy like, like Justin Thomas, like Spieth, um, those guys, I think they have this sort of 
love for the grind of of things that Kepka doesn't. It's it's hard to say he doesn't love the grind because he just won the the grindiest uh, tournament there is twice the U.S. Open. Uh, but like the day to day, like I, I just I think he views golf way more. Brant Snedeker had this great quote, or there was a great quote about Brant Snedeker. I read it like five or six years ago about how he plays golf on vacation, like with his buddies. And at the time I was like, yeah, of course he does. He's a professional golfer, but whoever wrote it was talking about how rare that is among professional golfers. And at the time I was new to all this and I didn't really, I didn't really get that. I didn't really, I I didn't understand how it all worked. And now you see that like none of these guys play golf when they're on vacation and the few that do, and and Kepka, not none of them, but a lot of them don't. And Kepka is certainly among those who don't. And and he's talked about how he doesn't watch it, he doesn't care about it. Uh, and so, I, it, yeah, it's almost like he just rolls into these majors, and it's like, okay, the lights are on. Let's. It, he he's just so he's just such a performer at the big events. And then the other ones, he's just like, oh, I guess you know, I got to show up for this one this week or whatever. It, it it's it's. I mean, you can hear it in my voice. I'm, I'm having a difficult, difficult time reconciling what that all means. Um, but you know, I, I think the bigger, from a bigger picture perspective, the Americans have dominated the last year's worth of major championships. They've won six in a row, or uh, five, yeah, five in a row, starting with last year's U.S. Open. And six in a row, I guess, if you want to count the Players' Championship. But I think you, if you look ahead to the next three or four years of, of U.S. Opens, mm-hmm. U.S. Open runs through Dustin Johnson and Brooks Kepka. I mean, they, they've, they've had seven top fives in the last five U.S. They've combined for seven top fives in the last five U.S. Opens. So the tournament now runs through them in the same way that I feel like the, every Masters runs through Jordan Spieth. And so it's going to be really interesting when we get to Pebble next year and then Wingfoot and then Tory uh, to see, you know, if one of those guys is again at the at the top of the leaderboard at the end of the week. What's uh, I am I'm not uncomfortable, but I'm not all in on the idea that there's a there's a big collapse factor to what has happened so far uh, for Dustin Johnson at the U.S. Open this year. No, I, I I agree. It did feel like he should have. It, it felt like he, he, there should have been more juice there on the weekend. Yeah, but I mean, I don't. It didn't feel like a collapse as much as no. it was. Uh, he hit the gas pedal, and there just wasn't as much gas there. Look, I mean, shooting. What did he shoot in in uh, ten at the at uh, Pebble? Like an eighty-one in the final round. Yeah, that was a collapse. That, that's kind of a collapse. But if you're shooting, I mean, he shot 77 on Saturday. But he shot a 70 I, on Sunday. Which I think, yeah, which was, uh, I think 77 was one or two over the field average for the day. Mm. I think it was two. And he played in the worst. Again, he had, like, literally you could not draw up a worse path for him to get to the trophy. He, he had the hardest first two rounds by, like, four strokes. And then he had... The afternoon on Saturday was absurd, and then the afternoon on Sunday was harder than than the morning on Sunday. So, the path to to get there couldn't have been harder. And uh, yeah, seventy on Sunday was two better than the field average, and and uh, seventy seven on Saturday was like two worse. So he played the weekend pretty much even uh, to the field average, which to me doesn't doesn't really. I mean, that's not really a collapse. Yeah, I, I saw the, the collapse being used uh, a decent amount. I wasn't wasn't a huge fan of it. I, I think that there is uh, something that's a very, very simple explanation, which is, you know, you, you pointed out the, uh, the eight strokes gained against the field on the greens, uh, potentially unsustainable heading into the weekend. I had no idea how yeah. foreboding that was going to be, but... Yeah. I mean, as as soon as the round started, in the first four holes, uh, the word that I kept coming back to was that DJ just all of a sudden looked lost on the greens. And it unfortunately was a feeling that rang uh, deep within my golf soul because I've, I've been there and I'm sure a lot of people can be there where it's you get to a course and you get there on the first couple holes and then all of a sudden you're like, man, I, 
I, I don't know. I, and your your lines start getting crazy. You start doubting yourself. And, you know, I hate try, the, the trying to psychoanalyze any golfer, much less, oh, yeah, Dustin Johnson's just trying to, you know, pick my line and get it out. And, like, I, <laughs> I really think that there was some element of just, like, man, he – he had it rolling and then he lost it. And when the margin for error is this, then you know what? He's he's not going to be able to win the U.S. Open. And that that didn't feel as much like a, a massive collapse to me. It's like, well, you know what? You just lost it on the greens. And sometimes that yeah. happens. It to- I totally agree. And you know where else we saw that this year was uh, Rory at Augusta. If, if you look at his first three rounds at Augusta, his – uh, I think somebody did strokes gain for, for first three rounds. Um, I can't remember. It might have been Mark Brody who did it, but he was essentially holding his – not holding it together. He, he was buoyed by his putting over the first three rounds. And when you, get, when you get into a situation where a great ball striker like Rory or DJ is, is sort of being held up by their putting – uh, that's unsustainable. And especially at the clip at which they were putting. D- I mean, D- yeah, TJ had gained eight strokes on the field with his putter over the first two rounds. Right. I mean, that's, you just, you know, Aaron Badley couldn't sustain that. Like it's not, it's, it's, it, it's impossible. Right. And so what you, what you think you're going to get is a, a sort of a regression with the putter and a progression with his approach shots. Cause he wasn't that good even though it felt like he was, he wasn't that good with his approach shots over the first couple of days. And you're like, oh, well, it's DJ. He'll figure it out. But, uh, it, you know, we've seen that. We saw it with Rory at Augusta. He didn't figure out it out on Sunday with his approach shots. And we saw it with DJ on the weekend. He didn't truly figure it out with his approach shots. And uh, as a result, he ended up, again, I don't want to say blowing a lead, but losing a, kind of a big-time lead throughout the weekend and I think that just be it just points back to the just how important uh, approach shots are Kepka's number one in the field in approach shots he wins the golf tournament this is a very uh, I mean it's a fairly straightforward thing that the best putter of the best ball strikers uh, on the week is going to win the golf tournament do you want to gain some strokes against your buddies? Uh, well, one of the places where you can do that is actually it's at Top Golf. And if you haven't heard us uh, talk about this before, then uh, you need to get on get on it and get out there because at Top Golf uh, they do lessons differently. They've got certified instructors who not only help you improve your game, but they want to help you have a great time too. So all the wonderful amenities of Top Golf, you know, the the opportunities to hang out with your friends, the the atmosphere, the environment, uh, that can all be happening along with a top golf lesson from a certified instructor. So sip, snack, swing, and play better. That's again, hear it. Sip, swing, snack, play better with Top Golf Coach. And the way that you can do it is by booking a lesson today at topgolf.com slash lessons. Once again, that is topgolf.com slash lessons. Get there and save some strokes with Top Golf. Topgolf.com slash lessons. Your uh, your point about American golfers, uh, Patrick Reed almost won this thing. I know. Talk about we, not being we... able to reconcile with like <laughs> the takeaways from a a major championship. What if what if Patrick Reed wins the Masters and the U.S. Open? Well, it, it, here's here's my thing with him. If 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 Patrick Reed wins the Masters and the U.S. Open at Shinnecock. I mean that's as that's as pure as a two tournament run gets. Right. Augusta, Augusta, and Shinnecock, and the thing that I wouldn't be able to reconcile, and and maybe even that I can't reconcile as it is, is he's not a great ball striker. I mean, I, like obviously he's a he's a good ball striker, but compared to the best guys in the world, he's not among them. And those are two places where it's like you you have like these are like the best swingers of the club, not only currently, but, but ever like those, those are the guys that went at Augusta and, and Shinnecock. And Patrick um, Reed's one of them, baby. <laughs> and he almost, and he almost pulled it off. It was, it was unbelievable. And I, I think, I, I think he could be a guy where you see this. I, I don't get too deep into the, Oh, well, he's won one. So now he's going to win a bunch of them. But I, I do think, uh, psychologically that him winning one is kind of, it, 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 it's a big deal for him. 
And so now he just thinks he's going to win them all. Not that he didn't think that before, but now he knows it. And so I think you're going to see him really, um, really contend at a, at a lot of these majors. And he's another guy like, again, I go back to the Justin Thomas, Jordan speed thing, not normal. Those are the outliers. Patrick Reed's been around on the, on the tour for six or seven years. This is the time when you're supposed to start winning majors as a, as a tour player, having, 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 uh, like kind of ridden the, the, the learning curve on the PJ tour. Same with Brooks Kepka. Like he's been around for a while. He he's not 22 years old. And so it's, it, it, to me, it makes sense that those guys are starting to uh, kind of, kind of become what they are going to be on the PGA tour and, uh, that they're going to start, you know, maybe not winning a lot of them, but at least contending at, uh, and, and maybe winning a few more of them. I told you, uh, during the open that there was just like a running list of thoughts that I, I kind of kept going throughout the, the live blogging <laughs> and other, and the, the, I'm looking at it right now on my, uh, little notepad doc. And the, the quote is, uh, I must, I must've written this like Sunday, right in the middle of his birdie train. I said, Patrick reads reality is becoming dangerously closer to our reality. <laughs> the idea that Patrick Reed, who absolutely considers himself the best player in the world and has no idea why everyone else can't see it, the idea that the way that he views himself is starting to inch closer and closer to the way that the rest of the golf world views him is a terrifying prospect, but I think it's where we are. We had we had some we had some phenomenal conversations at Shinnecock over uh, the Reed Slam. Like what, <laughs> what 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 would it be like to go like <clears throat> so many so many conversations that started with Are you prepared to live in a world where we head to Carnoustie with Reed looking for the Grand Slam? <laughs> I mean, it, and and yeah, like it felt it felt like for a while on Sunday that that it was happening. I mean, he kind of just, he kind of hung around. I think he was better. I think he shot a better score every day. I think he went like 72, 71, 70, 68 or something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That might be that like the, the numbers I just threw out there might've added up to like a winning score. So I don't, I don't think that's actually the right numbers. Uh, but he just kind of hung around and then all of a sudden on Sunday you're like, Oh Yeah. Patrick Reed's here. Of course he is. It's, you know, one of the biggest U.S. Opens ever with Tiger and Phil back in this field that we have. And, of course, Patrick Reed's going to, you know, contend for and, and almost win this tournament. What uh, the uh, – another thing from my notepad, this I said the specter of Tommy Fleetwood 63 hanging over the competition made for one of the – made for a truly fascinating uh, Sunday afternoon. Like that – that was that seemed the way that DJ was uh, not really able to to hit the gas and give that little bit of extra uh, charge that we were looking for. Uh, especially, was it uh, is eleven the par three where both Kepka and DJ came away with bogeys? Yeah, but uh, Kepka had gone in the he went thick stuff trap. Uh, knocked down the the bogey putt that felt like a birdie. DJ was on the green, but then three jacked it. Like uh, after that moment, it was Kepka against Fleetwood, and yeah. you look back at Fleetwood's round, and I I think that in the live blog I I sort of started talking about sixty three chatter when he was making the turn or headed to the back nine. And he had good birdie looks, not only at 16 and 18, but he had birdie looks at 8 and 10. The dude was absolutely in fuego and could have shot a 59 at Shinnecock. Yeah. I mean, if it was Reed, he would have said he left like 10 out there. <laughs> right, right. But I picked him up. So I'm, I'm following Kepka and DJ on the front. Uh, yeah, on the front nine. And then after the fourth hole, I hop over to 16 to pick up Fleetwood because I'm like, this dude's about to shoot a 62 and put a number up. And, I, you know, as I was like after it all kind of unfolded, I, I thought about how, how compelling is it for somebody to post a number like that and everybody else to kind of be chasing it. Oh, I know. Especially, especially on a course that, that changes as much as Shinnecock does throughout a day. I mean, we saw it more so on Saturday, but it wasn't exactly easy in the afternoon on Sunday. 
and it and it and it was a little. I mean, it was a little bit easier on Sunday morning when when Fleetwood was shooting his number. But I mean, the looks he had on sixteen, I watched him on seventeen. He had a decent look, and then eighteen, obviously, the the shot on eighteen. I was standing uh, kind of behind him, and he hit this big just. I mean, I couldn't believe how high it was. It looked like a. It looked like he hit a sixty degree wedge, and I know I know he didn't because he was like one ninety out, and this just this big hooking, uh, whatever it was, and an eight iron to nine feet. It, it was, I mean, if like it, being there at the time, it felt like a moment. Like it felt like okay, this is this is a thing, and 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 at the time you thought it was for sixty two and and potentially. Uh, the win because of what everybody else was was gonna you know you you knew that the afternoon was gonna get a little bit harder right and I t- I told the guy that I was with I said after he missed it I said he's gonna lose by one isn't he and mm-hmm. sure enough he ends up he ends up losing by one and it, it it has to be so frustrating for him to have I mean he shoots seven seven under the next best number is Fowler at five under and you had Hideki at four Patrick Rogers at three. And nobody else in the field was better than two. So we can talk about how the USGA put the pins in the middle. They slowed it down, whatever. All I know is that only four people shot better than two under, and he was two better than anybody in the field. You know, we it, we spent all this time talking about DJ collapse or all these other players that couldn't blow it. But like, why why is Tommy Fleet? Why is Tommy Elitewood getting treated with baby gloves? Is it because he's so young? <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. Had you not heard Tommy Elitewood before? That's great. I know. It's, I love it's, it. It's not original, but I'm uh, he, I'm pushing it. I'm I'm, I'm on the he, campaign. He he gave he gave the the fans on 18. He showed them the locks. Took his just he should he should play without a hat. I don't. I I, I like I like having the I like <laughs> having the locks float. Like I like to see the emerging cabbage. You know. <laughs> The, the growing flow. That's what I, I like. I like the hat with the long flow outside of it. Yeah. No, he, he was great. I, I, for, I, you said Elitewood and I just forgot what, what is even the question? What's the question? Uh, oh, like, you know, I just think that, uh, well, I mean, there's two sides to this. Number one, I, I felt like his round and how close he was to winning this thing quickly sort of fell below the fold as uh as as the afternoon went on and as we started to get all of our recaps you know some that's we haven't even talked about phil mickelson a lot of that was the usga phil brooks dj you know he was the the fifth fifth or sixth story uh but then sort of packaged into that and where i wanted to go is i i was surprised i was um having dinner with friends on saturday night and a lot of my crew, they're they're on board with Tommy Elitewood. I I was like, man, what's the like? What? Where do you think it is? Where do you think he is in terms of his rise? Not as a player, because I think his game is obviously just absolute stripe show beautiful. But what about as a star? What about as a player that golf fans know and either like or hate, but at least recognize and uh, enjoy watching? Yeah, I. I mean, it, this is tough because I, I, I'm very biased toward him because I, I, I mean, obviously we've had an interaction with him and I just, I, I love listening to him talk. Like, I know that's a, just the stupidest reason ever to like, uh, some, like an athlete, but I think it's just fascinating to hear him talk about and, and the way that he views the sport. He clearly just has a joy for it that is it's uncommon. I mean, it just, it just is like when you hear about, when you, when you listen to Brooks Kepka talk about golf and when you listen to Tommy Fleetwood talk about golf, it doesn't even feel like they're talking about remotely the same sport or, or entity. Yeah. You know? And so, and so I gravitate towards Fleetwood because it's like, it, you know, so, uh, Peter Thompson, uh, Australian golfer, 88 years old, won five open championships, uh, he died this week, and I went back and was reading some old quotes of his, and he was talking about, "Look, I've never, I've never worked a day in my life. Like this is not work. This is, it's a simple, joyful game, and that's what you get from Fleetwood. And, uh, you know, even better that he's, 
humorous, uh, can make fun of himself, and is one of the I don't I think three or four best ball strikers in the world in terms of just pure like iron play. Maybe not necessarily off the tee, but but with his long irons, there's there's very few people that are better from from distance than he is. And uh, yeah, I think he's. I think he has to win a major to to become like a true star, and and maybe he can't even achieve that uh, over here in the U.S. But I certainly think uh, in Europe, and and you know what's gonna you know what's gonna be interesting for him, what could make or, or break him in terms of being a star or superstar, what is the right is the Ryder Cup. Mm-hmm. I I think I think that is I think there there's potential there. In the same way that we saw Thomas Peters break out at last at the last Ryder Cup for, but but I think Fleetwood has more staying power. What, I mean, if Fleetwood goes like, I don't know, three one and one, but he 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 closes out the Ryder Cup or something like that, I think all of a sudden you're like, okay, like this is a big deal. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm all in on Tommy Fleetwood. All right, so uh, Jordan Spieth, Brooks Kepka, Tommy Fleetwood. Who rounds out Kyle Porter's top five ball strikers in the world right now? Uh, well, give me the names again. I forgot what. So well, you, you said Fleetwood, Kepka. I know that you've got Spieth as the best ball striker in the world, and you've mentioned both Fleetwood and Kepka in this episode. Yeah, I think I think Sergio's in there. Ooh, yeah, yeah, I do. I don't. I mean, I'll so have I, an argument I, against it. I, that's just that's a that's a that's a great uh, sage addition to this group. Yeah, I think it's I think it's Sergio. I think it is Usti. Uh, yeah, Usti's up there. I, I I love like trajectories and different ball flights. I love Leishman. I I don't know if I put him top five. I don't know if Spieth is top five. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I feel I, like I I've heard you do... say multiple times Jordan Spieth's the best ball striker in the world. Well, he's the best. He's one of the best. Yeah. But I just, to me, there's a difference between, I, I guess I'm talking about the difference between which ones I like and which ones are the, are the best. Spieth probably is top. I mean, he is top five, just sort of objectively speaking, but I don't really like watching him swing. I don't like listening to when he hits the ball. Ooh, I got you. So... I do with Sergio. I do with Fleetwood. I do with um, Kepka. DJ's up there. Rory's in there. Rory, Rory's a little different. Like he's probably the best one to listen to hit the ball, but he doesn't necessarily have the trajectories and the and the shots that like a Sergio or he doesn't show them that a Sergio or a Fleetwood or a Leishman has Fowler's up there in terms of just pure ball striking. All right. Uh, if By you, the way, we, we have somebody who, who wants to call into the show right now. Right now? Right now. All right, let's do it. Sean, Sean Martin wants to call in and give his Phil Mickelson take. For real? Yeah. Uh, is he, is he with you? Uh, no, but we were, we were just, uh, we were just G chatting and he asked if we were doing the podcast and he said he, he, he's in. Well, Kyle, before we bring on Sean Martin, uh, we need to ask a question of our listeners. Now, if if you're a true golf fan, then you've got to have a Roku streaming player. It's a device you plug into your TV to unlock thousands of live streaming and on-demand channels, including the free, that's right, free CBS Sports app. It's awesome if you have subscriptions to any professional sports league apps. They're all available on the Roku platform, so you can stream right to your TV. Even if you don't have premium subscriptions, Roku is an awesome way to catch your favorite local teams live with apps through many of the cable providers. Plus, of course, Roku has access to all the movies and TV shows that you could want with more than 500,000 available across free and paid channels. So check them out. Roku streaming players start at just $29.99 for the basic player, or you can spring for the higher-end players, which stream in 4K and crystal clear HDR. With Father's Day, you know, Father's Day season still going on, Roku players make an awesome gift, too. So if you missed out on the, uh, the Father's Day gift, hit them with that Roku player. Visit Roku.com. That's R-O-K-U dot com to learn more 
and start streaming today. And now we are pleased to welcome to the show, friend of the show, Sean Martin, PGA Tour. Uh, you have promised with your appearance a spicy fill take. It has lined up very well because we have uh, we've already worked our way through Brooks, DJ, Tommy Elitewood, Patrick Reed, and uh, and we haven't even gotten to Phil yet. What's your spiciest Phil Mickelson take, Sean? I'm just here to talk to Becky. <laughs> <laughs> a Trojan horse, a Trojan horse on the podcast. Uh, no, you know I think. I don't know if you guys saw the text message she sent to a handful of reporters, which uh, I know I wasn't on the short list. I don't know if Kyle was, but uh, obviously I've learned my place in the golf media sphere. Phil did not have my number, but what he said in that, in that text is like what I wish he had said when he walked off the golf course, it would have been such a great, like sympathetic moment. This guy who is one of the greatest players of all time on this quest for his white whale at a course where he's come so close before if he just walked off the golf course and said, you know, guys, I cracked the pressure to win this thing is so great. I'm getting older. I know I only have a couple chances left. I've blown it today. I thought I still had a chance starting the day and uh, I just couldn't handle it. You know, I just lost my mind. I just snapped like that would have been such good copy. Those stories would have been so great. Phil would have been such a sympathetic character. Everyone could sympathize with it. But instead, you know, what he said was just made people kind of mad and left it open for, lots of different interpretations and takes. And, and I think what he said is really what happened. I think uh, today, what Wednesday Phil is more uh, correct than, than Saturday Phil. I think just the guy snapped and he finally admitted it and he just didn't want to at the time, but it was just too much. Yeah. So the, the text I'm reading it uh, from, I was not on the Talk thread either, but no, <laughs> no, <clears throat> I know this should have come sooner, but it's taken me a few days to calm down. My anger and frustration got the best of me last weekend. I'm embarrassed and disappointed by my actions. It was clearly not my finest moment and I'm sorry. So there we go. And then uh, a bunch of people jumped in the mentions of everybody who tweeted that out. And Brendan and Brendan Porras screenshotted all of these arguments and said, I I <laughs> I hope people are hollering at each other about this until the very last gasp of this planet. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, the like do you think that it's because Phil's programming is uh, adversarial when it comes to the U.S. Open and the USGA. I mean, just like his, you know, in in times of of high stress, we kind of revert to whatever our, our core programming it is, be that good or bad. And just the fact that, uh, you know, his his most um, you know, his most animalistic instinct in these situations at this event is to lash out. Cause that's, that's kind of what I saw. That's where I was like, ah, well, this isn't going to be the outrage cycle on this is not going to be fun, but I understand, uh, based on Phil Mickelson's experiences, previous comments uh, and everything else that he wasn't going to handle this in a mature way. Yeah, I think, yeah, you know, I think, go ahead, Sean. Go ahead. Oh, well, well, all right, I'll take it. Uh, Bamberg, Michael Bamberger of Golf.com had a great column, and he just he detailed all these past examples where Phil has gotten frustrated with the USGA and basically made the case that, you know, Phil feels like some of these extreme setups, Shinnecock especially, cost him that U.S. Open that he needed for the Grand Flame. And so he definitely uh, – there's some animosity there, and I think that that uh, – I think you're right. I think that he just kind of snapped. And, and, you know, if it was not – you know, at Augusta, you know, if he shoot, you know, shot that third round 79 at Augusta, but he didn't do anything like this. And, and he came into the Masters playing so well, had a chance to win. He was one of the favorites. Uh, but he didn't snap like he did here. And I think part of that is because kind of the opposite of what you're saying, like he so, loves that place so much and respects it so much that he would never think about doing that. But he's so frustrated uh, with the U.S. Open. Bamberger had that great anecdote from Marion where he walks off the tee on this par three where he had to driver. And he's like, really? 275 into the wind? You're kidding me, right? I mean, I think you would never see something like that at Augusta because he loves it so much. You saw it at the U.S. Open because it is a place that has caused him a lot of frustration. Mm. Kyle? Yeah, I, I think he's just, I mean, uh, Sean said it earlier, he's just, he's broken. I mean, it's been 27 years of futility. And I think that his, I mean, clearly he just snapped in the moment. And what happened, I actually thought, 
him trying to like rationalize it and like talk his way through it was just uh, that that was like weirder to me than even the the moment of, of itself like on the green and, and it was like t- he said i thought about doing this at 15 at augusta before <laughs> when like what it, it was just a it was a very um it was a very strange turn of events and one of the things that we were talking about at the tournament is it's it's incredible to me like the the number of like phil is this like every man who makes also makes forty five million dollars a year to play golf? It has and, has a dinosaur skeleton in his house. Yeah, has has a dinosaur skeleton and drinks bottles of wine that are like cost more than what I make every year, and and yet people like the average golf fan is just infuriated with the uh, the you know liberal biased media for saying like he should have been disqualified. This this can't happen. When it's like, do you do you understand? Like, do do you understand like all the players in this game here? Because it's just it it, to me like the biggest the biggest takeaway I had was just how many like the army of people Phil has behind him. He can do anything. I mean, it's it's almost it's almost Trumpian not to not to make this about that, but he he could do anything he wants, and people will defend him. And I mean, he knows he he was wrong. The USGA knows he was wrong. They used a loophole in the rules to keep him in the tournament, which was not great. And I don't know. The whole thing was incredibly bizarre to witness. Uh, do you, uh, Kyle, first, do you think that it is a self-fulfilling prophecy at this point that we, as the as the media or as golf fans, are going to end up uh, yelling and screaming about something every single U.S. Open because it's starting to feel like muscle memory. That uh, I mean, there there is no there there is no one in any of these other organizations that is as well known as uh, inconceivable. Uh, Mike Davis, like like like, there's just nobody else who gets that much FaceTime and who's mentioned that much in columns and who has to hold all these extra press conferences to explain rules. And I just, we've gone through this dance so many times that it's almost like part of the U S open pageantry and not the part that I like, uh, is that there's going to be, whether it is a, a large drama or conflict, but there's always going to be some way that, the the extra competitor, the extra figure in the storylines is just going to end up being uh, the USGA or the Open itself. Yeah, I mean it's it's just it's part of the tournament. I mean it's like the it's like there it's like the Masters par three. It's like the par three at the Masters is is just controversy at the US Open. And I, I go the other way though. I I love it. Like oh. I the it, I love the <laughs> chaos. I love the fallout. The whole Phil thing was incredible. And that, that was the part that frustrated me is like, this can be an incredible thing and incredible. I, I don't mean necessarily good, but it can also be sort of a pathway to disqualification from the tournament. And and yet people were just choosing up sides and saying it was one or the other. Either it was the greatest thing that's ever happened and he stuck it to the USGA and you know, whatever, or this is a crime against humanity and he should be in prison for it. Um, which Phil has some experience with skirting those issues in the past as well. But, uh, when you beat this, when you beat the Southern district of New York with only a nominal charge, (laughs) but yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's part and parcel for us opens and I am already looking forward to whatever it's going to be next year at Pebble. What do you think, Sean? Yeah, I was watching Golf Channel, I think, Saturday morning before getting on the, the shuttle ride uh, before hitting the traffic, and they were interviewing Mike Davis, and I just had this thought of, like, I am I like Mike Davis, but I'm just tired of seeing him on television at every U.S. Open explaining himself, kind of like you said. Like, and I think that's what frustrates the players is they feel like the USGA is out to embarrass them. Like, Friday morning, we were out walking, and, you know, it got rain rainy for a little bit where it kind of affected play, but for the most part, it was a misty like soft day. There was no wind. So, I mean, it's about as easy as it's going to play. And it was still really hard. So like, they didn't have to jack around with it. They didn't have to mess with Shinnecock. Shinnecock stands the test of time, but for some reason they were unhappy with, you know, four under leading and who, by the way, was the only guy under par. 
uh, and they went ahead and tried to mess around with it, and you know they got bitten. And that's what I think the players get most frustrated about. They just feel like the USGA wants to embarrass them. They they want the you know hack out rough and guys shooting eighty and all this stuff. And you know it's just they think the almost the USGA have to get them. This why why do why is Mike Davis get more FaceTime than the Augusta National Chair, right? Like 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 I don't yeah, know, I don't yeah. know I don't know who the who well, the head. I of think the, part of that part of that's by choice. Yeah, I think Augusta, you know, they like to stay behind the curtain a little bit. Well, that's true. Um, but I I don't. But also, know. You're, they've been setting up. They've been setting up the same golf course for decades now. It, it is hard too to come in for one week and set up one you know new golf course each year. That's true. Yeah, I, I thought I thought but Andy put, made a. Re- I thought Andy made a great point on on uh, the fried egg podcast that you were on, Sean, about how the the line for, uh, really difficult versus just kind of goofy is so thin. And I actually I didn't. <clears throat> I'm with the people who didn't think Saturday was that bad. Uh, I thought that. I thought he. <sighs> The coverage of the end of the day, because you were seeing the leaders come through these holes that were that got a little wonky, made it seem like it was worse than it was. I was on 15 when Poulter hit that shot, and that was kind of bad. Like that was like, okay, what what are we doing here? Uh, I think he was in the bunker and basically hit it right next to the pin, and it just funneled off the completely off the green. Rose's putt on 18 wasn't great, but I I think I think the I, I think that they, um, if they didn't try to toe that line, like if they just if they just dialed it back a notch to where, uh, okay, maybe it's playing a little easier than they want it, but at least there's you know people aren't losing aren't aren't freaking out about it. Then I think that would be I think that would be fine. But I also think we go almost too far the other way and and act like the USGA is the worst thing that's ever happened to to professional golf, which uh, I think also isn't true. So I don't know. I, I, I do sort of sympathize with the fact that they want this to be a really difficult tournament. And yet to make it a really difficult tournament, you have to be on the edge. And sometimes it goes over the edge. Sean, who you uh, who are you picking to you win? Know, who are you picking to win at the travelers? Wow. Uh, quick pivot. Um, I, I'm going to go, I think Paul Casey is one. You're really caught me off guard here. Uh, my, my one and done pick was, uh, I can't remember now, but I think, I think this is a place, honestly, though, where speed can get back on track. I think he, he's going to walk back in, uh, you know, confidence brimming, uh, you know, you're always one week away in this game. Just knowing you don't know when that week is. And I kind of think that, you know, he had a weekend off after Shinnecock, unfortunately, to clear his head. He walks into a place where he obviously has fantastic memories from last year. And, and I just think that, uh, you know, we've seen this before where years like 2016, we thought that year was shot for him and then he wins twice. And I, and I think we'll get there too with him again, where we think this is a lost year, but, uh, I think he'll get it back quicker than we think. That's Kyle's, uh, but normally, normally Kyle's theory starts with a good performance at the U S open, right? Which theory is that the Jordan Spieth, we bag him at the beginning of every season and he's going to finish the year like, uh, with one major and, uh, in the running for one of the top players of the season. Yeah. He's going to, he's going to win, uh, like, uh, Bridgestone and the PGA. He's going to have the career slam. He might win the, he might win the, uh, the players championship. He'll have like three wins, win like four points at the Ryder cup by the end of the year. And, and like all the takes right now will look just horrendous in like three months. Uh, what's the Kyle, what do you like about the, the course at Hartford and the event? Well, I think, so if you look at the last, it's either eight or nine years, uh, every, every travelers has been decided by either one stroke or a playoff and they, and they've been memorable too. Like we got the, we got the Bubba meltdown that one year we got Ken Duke winning, which was insane. We got, um, who who was it that uh, was it Kevin Streelman that made like eight birdies on the back nine one? Row. Yeah, seven in a row. Uh, obviously, we got Spieth last year. It just seems to be set up for a tremendous amount of drama. And now you've got a field this year that is, I mean, five of the top nine guys in the world playing. Not only is it not a WGC or a major, it's the week after a major. You never see that. And 
I don't know. I, I think it's I just think it's it's awesome. I'm I'm fired up about this weekend. It's cool too because all kinds of players can play well there. Like Jim Furyk shoots fifty eight. There was a year that Bubba Watson and Corey Pavin were in a playoff against each other, which you don't get, you know, two more different ends of the spectrum as far as length. So I think uh, the way the course is set up, they go just low enough where, you know, guys like Strillman can make seven birdies in a row, but also it's it's long enough that it doesn't kind of handcuff the big hitters, but the short hitters also can play there. Mm. Who's your pick, uh, Kyle? I took speed. <laughs> ah, you too. Mm. <laughs> Well, I, t- I, look, yeah, I, I looked it up. My one event was Bubba. I think Bubba's won twice here, and he's having a good season. Bubba's probably your betting man's favorite. Spieth, Spieth putted well at, at, at Shinnecock, according to Mark Brody. Yeah, he was 19th in putting over the first two days. So, Yeah, but like, when, when at what point does your uh, strokes gained on the green stat just kind of uh, just shiny up an already ugly performance? Yeah, I mean... Mark, Martin and I were talking about how like strokes gained, and and I, I struggle with this because I treat strokes gained as like this end all be all, and it's really not. It, it's a tool to to be used to evaluate these players, and I think if you actually watch Spieth in his struggles on the green, I think there it's fairly obvious that he's not you know in a in a great place, and so I think I think that ha- I think it does have to be taken. Uh, within within the context of of actually watching him play golf, I look at strokes gained like uh, Ken Palm ratings, and just because Virginia's number one in Ken Palm doesn't mean they can't get beat uh, by a sixteen seed. Yeah, yeah, that's I mean, true. It's, it's efficiency, right? And that and that essentially what strokes gained is probably like an, an adjusted efficiency metric. Yeah, I think that's a fair comparison in terms of the competition. Um, not because you're because strokes gained is against the field as opposed to against the course, but just the the way that it's approached and the way that it's used, uh, particularly in the analysis of golf, does feel like it is, it occupies that same space. Well, and there are also nuances like you don't take into account uh, putting downhill. You don't take in, into account being below the hole. You don't take into account. Um, having a better angle into a green than than normal. It's just it's just distance and what a player would normally make from that distance. So I think I think there are some nuances that it that it sort of uh, it doesn't reveal, and I think those are important to take into account. And that's why you that's why you watch golf. I, I think the hard thing about golf is that <clears throat> you're trying to evaluate all these players, and you don't like they're they're their shots are shown at varying amounts on on TV. So you see way more of Jordan Spieth than you see of, uh, I don't know, Scott Piercy, unless he's leading the U.S. Open. And even when he is, you don't you don't see him as much. So I think that's what I think that's part of what makes golf difficult to evaluate. All right. Speaking of evaluations, we've got our midseason evaluations and Sean Martin's going to join us for that, too. So make sure that if you're not already that you are subscribed to the First Cut podcast because uh, you're, you're not going to want to miss it. It's our midseason checkup technically later in the season, but uh, we'll get into that as well uh, for Sean Martin and Kyle Porter. This is Chip Patterson. Thanks so much for listening to the First Cut podcast.